0: Invite you to join me in your copy of God's Word in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. We'll be there in 432 through chapter 5, verse 11 this morning. Over 2,000 years ago, after his victory over Mark Antony at Actium, Augustus Caesar is said to have come back into Rome in triumph with a triumphal procession and parade. As emperors would do, and among the huge crowd who greeted him was a man who had a bird that he had trained to say, "Hail, Caesar, victorious!" Caesar was impressed, and he bought the bird for a large sum who who what what self serving emperor wouldn 't want a bird that could praise him every day then someone after a while came and got Caesar and, and took him aside, and whispered to him that the man also had another bird that was just as talented. The man was summoned and Caesar asked for a demonstration of what this other bird could do. The man demurred, but Caesar insisted. When the bird was produced and incited to do what it could do, the bird said, Hail, Antony, victorious. Here a man with two birds that he had trained to praise different victors of war, a man with mixed motives seeking to uh, provide for himself or to do for himself what would result in, in the best circumstances for him. Now, this is all legend. I don't think any of this is necessarily placed in true history, but we can certainly see the implications for such a man who would train two birds to say different things, uh, one for one victor and one for the, for the enemy uh, in this situation. My guess is that in this individual's life, things probably would not have gone well for him after Caesar had found out that he had such mixed motives. As we come to Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and and through 511, we find an event, an instance in the life of the early church where there are people that have different motives within the body, some that are good and, and some that are duplicitous. Now, because the church that is gathered together here in Acts chapter 4 is united around the gospel of Jesus we see coming out of them this unity in Christ leading to unparalleled generosity and care among the church. That we'll see at the end of chapter 4. But in the beginning of chapter 5, we find that insincere and duplicitous forms of generosity, false generosity, are grave dangers to the testimony of Christ by the church. It is dangerous in the church body for Christians to have mixed motives. As we think about that and the implications of those things, let's turn our attention to God's Word. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Will you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word together? Acts 4, verse 32. Luke, the missionary companion of Paul in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues his history of the apostles saying this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife, wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is certainly a dramatic event in the life of the early church. We're at a gathering. Two people, about three hours apart, fall dead in the midst of the assembly of the body in front of the apostles. It's, it's no wonder then why Luke would include this in his history of the early church and the apostles. Uh, it was quite a memorable event. But prior to these people falling down dead, we see in chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, uh, some really good things before we get to the bad stuff. So let's look at the good things that are present in the text, the good things about the church that are there first, and then we'll look at Ananias and Sapphira. First of all in verses 4 4 in chapter 4 verses 32 through 33 excuse me we find the extraordinary unity of the church the extraordinary unity of the church we read there the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own but they had everything in common and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all this is a church that is first and foremost united in the gospel. That which binds the church together in Acts, the glue that holds the church together, is not a mutual commitment to social overhaul and social improvement. It's not an economically imposed desperation. The church is not rallying around civil rights causes or the upheaval of the Roman government, although some would want them to do that. But what unites the church in Acts And what has united every true church of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years is the good news of forgiveness of sins for anyone who turns from their sin and places their trust and life in the hands and to the lordship of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's the glue that holds the church together. It is this very gospel, this good news of forgiveness in Jesus' name that birthed the church in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches that first sermon at Pentecost. It's this very gospel that carries the church along here in Acts 4 and will continue to unite the church even in our day today. There is plainly no other thing which we as disciples of Jesus must be in agreement upon and no more important truth for us to galvanize our fellowship around than that of the gospel of Jesus. It is so important, the gospel is so important to the unity of the church across all ages and contexts that it is, quite frankly, the only question I ask of anyone who is seeking to join our church. What is the gospel, I ask them? Have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your faith and hope for eternal life in Jesus Christ? So important is the gospel to the unity of the church in Acts and the unity of this church at First Baptist West Albuquerque that we must be in agreement on that thing. Perhaps you have thought your whole life you were a Christian because you cannot remember a time when you were not in church on a Sunday. It could be that you call yourself a Christian and that as you do so, you've you've attended Bible studies and Bible conferences and even prayer meetings. You may be a member of this church and even serving in our church in some capacity. You give of your finances to whatever church you happen to be regularly attending. But maybe today you're realizing that as we talk about the gospel as the heart of the church itself perhaps it is that you're realizing that you have never even in all your years of church going and sermon hearing that you have never sincerely turned from your sin and sought forgiveness in the arms of Jesus Christ it is possible to call yourself a christian and miss the gospel entirely When asking yourself the question right now, do I know the gospel? Do I understand it the same way that that Pastor Stephen is explaining it to me right now? Do I know for a fact that when I die, I will enter into the presence of Jesus Christ, not because of anything I have done, but only because I have given my life and every fiber of my being to Jesus as King? When asking yourself those questions this morning, it, it may be that you cannot give an affirmative answer. Friend, though you call yourself a Christian, you may not actually be. But the very good and wonderful news of the gospel is that anyone can be truly saved of their sin and reconciled to God as they sincerely turn from their own selfishness to trust in Jesus Christ. So, friend, be united to Christ today through the good news of the gospel. Enter into the unity of dozens of brothers and sisters here in this family of faith who are explicitly committed to that same truth, that there is one way to be saved. It is through faith in Jesus Christ and through him alone. This is a church that is united in the gospel. May God help us to be a church that is united in the gospel. But we see that as a result, this is also a church that is united in care. They're united in care. We see there in verse 32 that they had everything in common, as Luke says. No one saying that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. There is among this church in Acts chapter 4 an attitude that each of them is a steward, is a manager of what God has provided to them in life. Just as in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 45, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, this is not an example of communism. This isn't communal property ownership, but uh, but instead uh, a proper understanding of possessions and stewardship of God's provision. Among this church, the members of the church see everything that they have as ultimately belonging to God, that God has given to them to be managed, to be stewarded, to be used for his glory and for the ministry of the gospel. And in so doing, they enter into this kind of generous care as a body, selling their excess possessions and giving the money to the apostles to be distributed to those in the church that have need. The kind of care that's happening here is, a, is happening across all spectra and social strata of the church. As each person in Acts 4, as each member of the church has excess or even the ability to do without, they are giving to the mutual care of those in need among the church. Now, I think it's worth noting here that the church is giving sacrificially and generously primarily for the care of the church, for care for one another. It is true that Christians will go on in a short time after what we see in Acts chapter 4 and the, the rest of the first century and into the second century to include care for the vulnerable and suffering outside of the church. But their first attention to care is internal. Is for one another, for their brothers and sisters in Christ, those with whom they are mutually committed to the gospel. Friends, when we understand the depth of the bond that comes with faith in the gospel of Jesus, that by faith in Christ we are joined uh, not only to Him but also to one another, we see that the local church really is a family of faith. We don't use those words brother and sister in Christ. We don't use those words flippantly. We don't use those words superficially. We use those words intentionally and meaningfully. We are family in Christ. And when a family member is hurting or suffering, it is right and natural to meet their needs before meeting those of a stranger. And that is precisely what the church, out of their unity in the gospel, out of their unity in Jesus, this is precisely what they are doing in Acts chapter 4. This is a church with extraordinary unity in the gospel. Friends, know this, that wherever the gospel is truly loved, wherever the gospel is truly believed by a body of believers, there will be extraordinary unity. When we are united around the truth of the gospel of Christ, that there's salvation in his name, there will be extreme, there will be extraordinary unity. But understand this, the opposite could also be said that wherever the gospel is distorted, neglected, or only merely assumed by a body of believers, it is likely that discord will follow. If the gospel is not explicitly and intentionally the thing, the thing that we rally around and and gather around as a body of believers, there will always be ample opportunity for division and discord in the church. So let us make in our hearts as individuals and together as a, as a body of believers, the gospel. Let us make the gospel the center of our unity as a body. My oldest daughter has played um, soccer in, in fun leagues uh, two or three years now. And it's interesting to watch uh, what the priorities of the children on a kid's soccer team are. Some kids play to win. They're out there. They want to score the goal. They want to win the game, all of that. But there are some kids who play soccer to go out and pick grass. They, they're the ones, right? Everybody's seen a grass picker. They're the ones that are sitting back on defense, just picking and throwing grass. I was a grass picker. Some kids some kids, play to wear a cool uniform and just to have that, that camaraderie that comes with being a part of a the team. They could care less about the game, but they're really excited to wear number 17 or whatever. There are some, and you know them, kids who play for the Orange Slices, Twinkies, and Capri Suns that the team mom brings after the game. (laughs) On a kid's soccer team, there there, there are children who have all sorts of motives for being on that team. And in having all sorts of motives for being on that team, especially teams that have kids with all sorts of different kinds of motives, very rarely are those very successful teams. If for one child, the most important thing on that team is winning, is scoring goals and winning the game. And, and yet for other kids, it's picking grass, wearing a uniform, getting snacks afterwards. Their motives, their motivation are, are, are scattered all over the place. The kid who's playing to pick grass isn't playing to score goals and win games. The kid who's playing for the Twinkies afterwards is not playing to win games. You cannot expect such a team to be a championship team in a similar but all more serious way. In any church where the gospel is not the most important thing that every member of the church is therefore is committed to, is gathered around and seeking to to pursue and also to propagate in the world, such a church with mixed motives, with with mixed uh, priorities, will be a scattered, will be a, a divided in some ways, and often a confused church. Let us not be that kind of church, but let us be the church that we see like here in Acts 4, that is united in the gospel of Jesus. We see this church that is united with extraordinary unity around the gospel of Christ and in care for each other. And in verses 34 through 37, Luke gives to us an example of sincere generosity, the kind of generosity that comes out of the unity and the, uh, and the care that is present in the body. We see here in the example of Barnabas, uh, his nickname Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement, his real name Joseph. We see that sincere gospel generosity, generosity that flows out of a love for Christ and for the body. Sincere gospel generosity is freely given. Verse 34 tells us that the generosity taking place in the church is absolutely voluntary. The apostles are not asking for gifts. They're not giving out a call for support of those in need. But they are willingly receiving those things that the church feels compelled by God and out of love for the community that they are freely giving. And the apostles are then distributing uh, out of the gifts to anyone in the church that may have need. And in the same, in the same way, uh, everyone's needs in the church are being taken care of. In a similar way, we have an exemplar of generosity, Barnabas. This man who goes and sells a field that he owns. And he gives the whole sum of the sale to the apostles for the care and the ministry of those in the church that might need it. And for him to do this, Barnabas would have had to have been a person person of means. He would have had to have been a wealthy, relatively wealthy man. Average people in that day did not have, usually in their possession, fields or houses in excess to sell. If you had a house or a field that was used for your residence, for your livelihood, to give up all of that would put an undue burden on your family. But if you own two or three or four fields or several houses, maybe some in Jerusalem and some in another place uh, where where you live in other parts of the year, you can afford to be generous to give those things up. Barnabas was very likely one of these wealthy people. Without being asked, this Christian man, Barnabas who we'll later find in the course of Acts to be one of the first missionaries commissioned by the church in Acts chapter 13. This man of means, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, freely and voluntarily hands over a significant portion of his wealth for the good of the church. And that he does freely, without being asked, without being expected, only because he knows that he has it and God has called him to give it. Sincere gospel generosity is always freely given. Secondly, sincere gospel generosity is free of obligation. Say that a different way. Sincere gospel generosity has no strings attached. Verse 35 speaks of those who are giving these generous gifts, saying that they were laying them at the apostles' feet. Now, Barnabas, Luke's example here, does the very same thing in verse 37. Sells the field, brings the proceeds, lays it at the apostles' feet. What this little phrase Laid it at the apostles' feet. What this little phrase implies is not that the church are giving the money to the apostles themselves, but they're giving it over to the stewardship and the wisdom of the apostles to distribute it to corresponding needs. The implication here is that Barnabas and the others who before him also sold lands or houses and brought the proceeds, that they were giving these gifts, these financial gifts, with no regard for how they would be treated or thought of in return. Likewise, Barnabas is giving over all control of the funds to the apostles. He's not designating the funds for specific use or demanding that it only be given to help a certain person or a certain uh, fund or a specific cause. But Barnabas is giving with no obligation, with no strings attached on the use of the funds that God has called him to give. Looking at Barnabas' example and the example of, of sincere gospel generosity that we see here, we find this, that sincere gospel generosity never asks, how much should I give? But it always asks, what have I yet to give? Sincere gospel generosity never asks, how much should I give? But always asks, what have I yet to give? Our example for giving, our example for generosity is none other than God the Father in His giving of His Son, Jesus. And in the Son, Him giving of His life for our redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, Paul writes, you, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Jesus, the son, doesn't ask to the father, how much should I give? The son looks to the father and says, here is all that I can give. And he gives his life for the sins of humanity. So Christian, as you think about giving to the church whether that be financial, through, through tithes and offerings, whether that be through service or skills, gifts that God has given you that you can use to serve the body, encourage the body. Never ask, how much should I give? But always ask, what have I yet to give? Consider this example. Two different people. On the one hand, an elderly woman with $5 left in her pocket. And on the other hand, a successful businessman who's expanding his business and and planning for retirement, each coming to a pastor, coming to me and saying, how much should I give to the church? An elderly woman with $5 to her name a successful businessman expanding his company and, and preparing to put money away for retirement and other things. Certainly for the old woman, anything that she gives would constitute great and sacrificial generosity. Any percentage, any amount of five of the $5 to her name would be a generous and sacrificial gift to the church. I think we would all agree. Whether she gives 10%, 100%, or 2%, or no percent of that $5, any gift that she might give would be a generous gift. But the businessman could give hundreds of times what this older woman is able and he could still not reach true generosity. Sincere gospel generosity is not a matter of percentages. It's not a matter of amounts. But of true sacrifice for the greatest stewardship of whatever resources God has given. Some like to put sort of an arbitrary amount on how much they are to give to the church. I give a tithe. I give 10%. And friends, really, that's a good starting place for generosity as giving as a believer. It's based in what God commands the Israelites to do in the Old Testament to give a tithe. But what we fail to see oftentimes is that uh, those in the Old Testament who are giving a tithe, they're giving several different tithes throughout the year, which actually would probably amount to something more like 20% of their actual income, of their actual livelihood. Ten percent, the tithe is not something required of the church in the New Testament. We don't see commands to tithe anywhere in the New Testament. But what we do see in the New Testament is uh, the pattern of giving that we find there is, is that which is regular, generous, and sacrificial. It is ongoing. God continually gifts us with provision, and so we continually give back to him and to the work of ministry. It is generous in that we give it freely and we give it without obligation. Sometimes we give, we give more than, than uh, maybe some would consider wise, but we give what God has called us to, and we give sacrificially. We give in a way that, that, that we feel a little bit. If, if we keep things for ourselves and only give a certain amount with never feeling the impact of giving to God, how much do we really trust God to continue to provide day by day? Friend, if you come to me and to my office, you ask me, Pastor, how much should I give to the church? My first response will be to you, you're asking the wrong question. Don't ask how much should I give. Ask what have I yet to give. And then we can talk about it uh, after that. We have an example in Barnabas of of beautiful gospel generosity that is freely given and without obligation. Uh, An example to live up to, an example to pray that we might also Fulfilled. But then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we have an example of the other sort. We have an example not of sincere generosity, but of severe duplicity in Ananias and Sapphira. Here we have an example of false generosity, of, of faked generosity in the church. We find in the example of Ananias and Sapphira that false generosity has, first of all, non-gospel motives. False generosity has non-gospel motives or even anti-gospel motives. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, this couple in the church, Luke is sure, to show us that the, uh, is sure to show us the motive of their giving. Now they, like Barnabas, had property, excess property to sell. And having sold that property, like Barnabas, they sought to keep a portion for themselves while giving some to the church. And in giving some to the church, giving some to the apostles, they're telling the apostles that they were giving everything. So say they, they, oh, let's just throw an arbitrary amount on there. They sell a field for $100,000. They, they keep thirty or $40,000 for themselves, take the remaining $60,000 and give it to the apostles and say, here's everything that we got from the sale of the property. Barnabas and the others who gave did so from motives generated by the redeeming truth of the gospel, the generosity of Christ in giving his life for our forgiveness of sins and of God's generosity to us in sending his son to do that. But Ananias and Sapphira are giving in such a way that pads their personal pockets while also promotes their reputation in the church as generous people. Even though they attempt to disguise their greed and duplicity with the cover of gospel giving, the Holy Spirit reveals that their hearts are far from the gospel in this moment. We're told that the couple kept some back of the sale for themselves. Now that word that's translated kept back means literally to embezzle or to steal by misappropriation. It points to the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira that they're embezzling from what they ought to have given to God to keep for themselves. It is clear from Peter's speech in verse 4 to Ananias that keeping the money for himself, had Ananias decided to sell the property and keep the money for himself, would not have been wrong. Peter says, While the field was yours, you could have done anything with it. Even after you sold it, you could have done anything that you wanted with the money. But instead, you've chosen to lie about what you're doing with the money. All the giving in the church was voluntary. But to lie and to say that the whole sum of the sale was given when in fact it was not is the, is the sin that Ananias is guilty of. He with a, a heart not motivated by the gospel but motivated by greed has decided to lie to the apostles and to the church ultimately to the Holy Spirit about what he is giving. And so we see that false generosity is not just something that comes from non-gospel motives but false generosity is a lie to God himself the problem that Ananias and Sapphira create for themselves here is not. It's not in keeping some of the money for the sale of the property for themselves. Peter says they could have done exactly that with no issue. If they wanted to sell the property and keep all of the money for themselves, that's fine. But their problem is in that they have lied about the amount that they are giving for the purpose of profiting personally. While they may have assumed that they're only being dishonest with the apostles in the church with with people Peter indicates that their offense is much more serious because the Holy Spirit of God indwells the hearts of every genuine believer. They have, Ananias and Sapphira, have effectively lied to the Holy Spirit in lying to the church. And so here we we find in verse 4, we have a confirmation that the Holy Spirit is not just a force, it's not just a, a spiritual ether that's out there, but the Holy Spirit is a distinct person of the triune God. Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. Friends, the principle of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira remains today. The principle of their sin, the, that, that, that underlying motive, that underlying truth of, of what makes their sin sinful remains even today. Now, as then, when a Christian gives of his or her finances or gifts or talents or skills in a way that seeks personal benefit or a boost in reputation amongst the church, they are just as guilty of non-gospel motives and lying to God himself as Ananias and Sapphira were. Giving to the church, whether it be financial or through your gifts or through time or through service, all of it must come from gospel motives or seeking God's will and God's glory and God's best for the church, never wanting anything for ourselves, not seeking uh, reward through reputation, but seeking reward through what we were able to give to Christ, to give to God and to the ministry of the church. Finally, we see in Ananias and Sapphira that false generosity ultimately undermines genuine gospel witness. False generosity undermines genuine gospel witness. As Ananias and Sapphira each are confronted with their sin of, of lying about how much they're giving, neither of them have the opportunity to repent and seek forgiveness, but both are judged immediately by God and severely for their sin. God strikes them dead in the middle of the assembly. This is a severe punishment to be sure. I won't shy away from that. This is a severe discipline. And some may see it as exceedingly harsh on the part of God. But before we begin to to, to judge God or evaluate his wisdom in putting Ananias and Sapphira to death here, let us consider how this couple's duplicity actually undermines the gospel. Their duplicity, their lying about what is is truly uh, their gift or lying about their generosity, undermines the gospel witness internally, that is within the body. Had God left this couple unpunished and not revealed to Peter their sin, this couple would have likely assumed that they had escaped judgment. And even worse, that they would have done what was not actually sinful. To escape unscathed would, would even give them boldness to continue to sin in other more grievous ways. But because Christ died for sins and was raised for our justification with God, we are saved by faith in him to live new lives, not of duplicity, not of sin, but live new lives of holiness, of honesty, of integrity. At this early stage in the life of the church, God puts to death these two believers for their sin of lying to the Holy Spirit in order to protect the integrity of the gospel among the church, among the believers. Christ has not died that we might continue to sin, but he died that we might be freed from it. And so God, in putting this lying couple to death in the church, is protecting the gospel, the truth of of why Christ died. He's protecting it within the body. But he's also protecting the witness of the gospel externally. Imagine if Ananias and Sapphira had been able to continue on in the pattern that they had begun here in Acts chapter 5. Who else in the church might eventually notice this and desire to do the same? Who else in the church might sell property, keep some for themselves, and then tell the apostles, hey, we're giving it all. Look how great we are. What would become of the gospel if in the church's earliest days, her members came to be known outside the church as those who seek their own profit and reputation while preaching simultaneously the perfect humility and submission of the Son of God to die for the sins of man? What would become of the gospel in the world if, if the people preaching the gospel were only ever seeking their own selfish support to pad their pockets, their own livelihood, their own wealth, their own reputation. In such a case, the lives of selfish and self-seeking believers would undermine the very character of the Jesus whom they preach. In putting this couple to death, God protects the truth and implications of the gospel within the church and also protects the integrity of the witness to the gospel outside the church. Now, the result of the punishment of death for Ananias and Sapphira is fear upon all in the church and those who hear about it. This fear, that Greek word phobos, could be understood holy reverence. And it is in some places in scripture. People, they fear God. They have a holy reverence for God. And certainly that's part of the understanding here. But without a doubt, the church is brought, here in this case, to a state of reverence before a holy God who judges sin this way. Just as likely, though, and maybe more so, is that the church and those in Jerusalem who hear of it uh, stand in real respect and timidity at the prospect of meeting a similar fate at the hands of God. It is right and good to fear God who judges sin justly, who does not merely wink at sin, but who judges it who deals with it, who offers punishment for it and discipline for his church. Here we have, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, two types of discipline all at one moment. We have both corrective discipline and formative discipline. There's corrective discipline in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. Their their pattern of sin is corrected in that they are put to death, that they might not continue in that pattern of sin anymore. Their sin is corrected. But there's discipline also in the life of the church in a formative aspect. Discipline in a way that teaches the church what believers in Christ, what believers in Jesus, what those who are united in the gospel live like is not this. Those who are united by the gospel, united by their faith in Christ, live lives of holiness and integrity and sincere generosity, not, not in duplicity. And so God is both correcting those who are sinning and forming the understanding of generosity in the life of the church. As we look at this a negative example of generosity in Acts chapter 5. We should come away, I think, asking or, 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 or knowing this, that sincere gospel generosity never asks, what can I gain from what I give? But always asks, how will God be glorified in what I give? Sincere gospel generosity, giving really out of a a heart of generosity that's moved by the gospel, never starts with the question, what can I gain from what I'm giving? But always asks, how will God be glorified? How will God's reputation increase? How will God be more famous? How will the gospel be better served in what I give? David Livingstone, the pioneer medical missionary in the heart of Africa in the 1800s, once said this, I place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. If anything will advance the interests of the kingdom, it shall be given away or kept only as by giving or keeping it, I shall most promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes in time or eternity. David Livingston would give his life on the mission field in Africa. He considered nothing that he owned, his own, but only that which God had given to him to manage for the benefit of the gospel, for, the, for the, uh, the expansion, the growth of spread of God's glory amongst the lost people in Africa. He placed no value on anything that he had except in relation to the kingdom of God. And he would either give or keep only in such a way that giving it or keeping it would advance God's mission in the world. Friend, when you think about when you pray about what God would have you to give to the church, either by way of finances or by service to the body, through gifts or skills that God has given that you can use to, uh, uh, d- to serve the body, to help us to be better equipped as missionaries of the gospel. Whatever way God calls you to give, always begin not by asking, what can I gain from what I give, but how will God be glorified in what I give? I started this week preparing for the sermon, thinking that this would uh, be a sermon about tithing, would be a sermon about giving to the church. It's really so much more than that. This text is about us as a church being unified first and foremost around the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Let nothing else be, be the center of our, our vision, the center of our commitment, but, but the message of Christ and him crucified. We rally around that. But as we rally around that, we also know that our hearts are going to be transformed to be generous and sacrificial people as a result. In the same way that God is generous and sacrificial to us by giving his son. Friend, God may be calling you to give in lots of different ways today. Certainly, the, 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 maybe the, the most ready way to be generous for the gospel is to give of our finances. We live in a world that, and in a culture that, that circulates around and moves around money. And it's, it's, that's not a bad thing. Money in and of itself is not evil. And it can be used for great good and, and for, for great, great gospel ministry in the world. And so it's not wrong that many of us seek to give to the church first financially. We take up tithes and offerings each week in service as part of our worship. But friend, when you give or when you're praying with your family or praying over your checkbook, your finances about what you ought to give, what is God leading you to give, don't ever ask the question, how much should I give? But look at all that God has given you, not just monetarily, but, but also in terms of, of possessions or, or other skills or gifts that you might possess. And think, what have I yet to give? Asking what have I yet to give goes beyond just looking at our checkbook and it looks at like our home. God, would you call me to sell my home to move into a smaller place that I might give from the sale of the home, the proceeds of the home to some gospel cause? Maybe God wouldn't call you to sell your home, but maybe God's blessed you with a large home with extra rooms that maybe he's calling you to give of, to open up to to a child who's in need of a, a, a foster home, a safe place to live for a time. How is God calling you? What, what is there still yet to give in your life? Maybe you have skills or gifts, talents, abilities that you use in your place of employment. That you use to make a profit for yourself. And that's not wrong. It's good to use the gifts that God has given to us to provide for our family. But maybe you look at those gifts, those talents, those abilities... And you're not seeing how in any of those things that you're actually giving to the work of the gospel through those things. Friends, what would God call you? What is there yet to give in your life and your abilities and your talents in the gifts God has given? And when you begin to give those things, don't begin with the motive of what do I get from this? Who's gonna see me give? Don't write your tithe check on Sunday morning while you're sitting in your seat as the plates are being passed so that the ushers and the people sitting by you can see you writing your check. It's a wrong motive to do that. You should already know in your heart God should have already revealed to you and and convicted you of what is right in terms of giving generously and sacrificially to the life of the body. You don't do it for your own reputation, but you do it for God's glory. When you think about what you're giving of your house, or maybe you're going to sell a car to give proceeds to something, you're just going to give up something. Or maybe you want to serve in the church in a particular way. You don't get to do that in any way that, that puts you up on a pedestal. Maybe you feel God has gifted you to serve in a certain way and you come to maybe to us as a staff at the church and say, hey, I really want to serve in this way. But we, in honesty to you, just say, you know what? That, we really appreciate that, but we don't have a need there, but your gifts might be able to be used in this way. Could you do that? If your initial gut reaction is, not, no, I know I really wanted to serve in this way. That was the way I wanted to do it. I'm sure my gifts could be used in another way that, that is a real need, but I really want to do this thing. Well, maybe your heart's in the wrong place. Are you willing to give, are you willing to serve in whatever way that God would call you, not for your reputation, not for your promotion, but for the promotion of God's glory, for the, for the furtherance of his kingdom and for the gospel. Acts four thirty two through five eleven is about sincere gospel generosity, but it always comes out of a heart that is given over first and foremost to Christ. Friend, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, giving your life in, over to his lordship, Repented of your sins and placed faith in Him. You will never attain sincere gospel generosity. You will always have mixed motives. Friend, the most important thing you can do with your life is to give it over to the Lordship of Christ. If you haven't done that yet today, do it today. We're going to have a time of response here in a moment. Singing a song in response to God. And with hearts of worship, with prayerful hearts, asking him to help us to respond faithfully to his word this morning. If you need to make a decision to follow Christ today, you want to trust Jesus with your life today, come and let me know about it this morning so we can celebrate with you, so we can rejoice in that, and so we can encourage you as you walk in your life with Christ. As always, uh, these front steps are open. If you need to come and pray with the Lord about anything, pray with me about anything that might be burdening you in your life. I want to be able to do that, but let's respond in faithfulness to how God is calling us this morning. Let's pray.